In 701 BC, when the great king Hezekiah, ruler of the Israelite kingdom of Judah, looked out from the ramparts of his heavily fortified city of Jerusalem, what he saw must have filled him with a sense of both horror and awe. For there, arrayed in the fields surrounding him and his great city, stood thousands of the most disciplined and highly trained warriors in the known world. Elite cavalrymen, charioteers, archers, infantry and siege masters, wielding the most cutting-edge military technology available at the time. They were also reputed to have been fearless as well as infamous for the lack of mercy that they showed towards their enemies. They were the Assyrians, and their forces were led by the most powerful man of his day. King Sinai Herabah, better known to history as Sennacherib. King Hezekiah must have heard the horrid tales of what the Assyrians did to their vanquished enemies. If his city fell, then any survivors, both soldiers and non-combatants alike, could expect to receive little clemency. If they weren't executed on the spot, sometimes after brutal, hideous tortures, then they'd most likely be rounded up and deported to serve as forced labourers in other parts of the vast Assyrian Empire. In those days, stretching from the Zagros Mountains in Iran, to the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, from the highlands of southeastern Anatolia, to the northern deserts of Arabia. In time, that empire would also include the great and ancient kingdoms of Egypt and Elam. Making the one who sat on the Assyrian throne the wealthiest and most powerful man on earth. And yet, barely a century later, that same mighty empire would be a distant memory. Its once magnificent cities of Ashur, Nineveh and Nimrud, all but forgotten and in ruins. For a good part of a thousand years, Assyria had been not just one of the most powerful states in the ancient world, but one of the most influential as well. Its legacy carried on for centuries. But who were these Assyrians? Where did they come from? And how did they rise from relative obscurity to rule over the greatest empire the world had ever seen? Wielding arguably the first professional standing army in history. In order to answer these questions and more, let's go back to the time when Assyria ruled the world.
Oh hi, I didn't see you there. Pete Kelly here. I'm the one-man team behind History Time. Having said that, for the first time ever, someone else has written a script for me for this one, and he just so happens to have his own YouTube channel. So a massive thank you to History with Sai. His is an epic channel all about ancient history. All of the good stuff. Go subscribe, like, comment, and watch his stuff. Now, without further ado, please allow me a moment to thank the sponsor for this video. A long-time supporter of both my channel and my brother David at Voices of the Past. Of course, it's Magellan TV. Quite simply, one of the premier documentary streaming services in the world. There's a huge amount of videos that you can watch on all manner of topics. From ancient history to outer space, it's all here. Many of them in beautiful 4K. You can watch it wherever, on your smart TV, your laptop, or your phone. This is the widest range of history content available anywhere. My recommendation at the moment is the birth of planet Earth. It's been a great reference for myself and David as we embark on our new channel, The Entire History of the Earth. Just a shameless self-plug there. Anyway, click on the link in the description below or head on over to try.magellantv.com forward slash history time for an exclusive month-long free trial. What have you got to lose? Go and get yourself some free knowledge. Now, back to the ancient world. The history of Assyria and the Assyrian people stretches back deep into the mists of time, to at least the year 2000 BC. During this long bygone age, what we currently identify as Assyria primarily consisted of a city-state called Ashur, located along the Tigris River in what is now northern Iraq. Originally a shrine town dedicated to a god of the same name, Ashur's location allowed it to become a regional hub of a trade network, encompassing the resource-rich cities of central and southwestern Anatolia, along with those of southern Babylonia, as well as the lands between the Zagros Mountains. Primarily trading tin and textiles for silver, over time, the city-state of Ashur became extremely wealthy. Thus attracting the attention of neighbouring kings and warlords. One of these was Shamshi Adad, an Amorite warlord of a small kingdom called Ekalatum. Around the year 1808 BC, the warlike ruler Shamshi Adad acquired the city of Ashur, assuming the title of king. Though he would eventually go on to rule a fairly large state that scholars today call the Kingdom of Upper Mesopotamia, the residents of Ashur considered him to be one of their own. And his domain is also known as the Old Assyrian Empire. 
I've previously made a documentary about Shamshi Adad and the old Assyrian Empire that I recommend watching after this one. Though, like many such kingdoms, burning brightly and going out just as quickly, Shamshi Adad's kingdom collapsed shortly after his death. Though it would continue to serve as an inspiration for future Assyrian kings in their own quests to make Assyria a great power once again. Such a dream was finally realized between the years 1365 and 1076 BC, during the last flourishing of the Bronze Age, an era which Assyriologists call the Middle Assyrian period. It was during this span of time that the Assyrians overthrew their Mitanni overlords, who had dominated them for centuries, charting their own path to becoming a regional power once more. Great kings during this era, such as Adad-Nirari, Ashur-Dan and Tiglath-Pilassar, corresponded with the great kings of Egypt the Hittite Empire and Babylonia as equals. Expanding Assyrian influence from the Zagros Mountains of Iran to the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Unfortunately, however, these periods of prosperity and greatness that these charismatic and highly capable kings presided over were relatively short-lived. The same pattern would happen over and over again. A king arising to catapult Assyria to greatness, only to have his achievements wither away due to inept successors or events beyond their control. Finally, a break in the cycle occurred in the 10th century BC, in the aftermath of the late Bronze Age collapse. They embarked on a path of sustained territorial and economic expansion that was to last over three centuries. Assyriologists call this span of time, roughly from 911 to 610 BC, the Neo-Assyrian period, the greatest of all the Assyrian empires. And up until this point in history, the most powerful ever yet seen in the known world. Whether due to the effects of invasions by the mysterious band of migrants and marauders known as the Sea Peoples, climate change, or some other unforeseen circumstance, the political order of the post-Late Bronze Age collapse was very different than that of just a few centuries prior. The once great powers of Egypt, the Hittites, and the Kassite Kingdom of Babylon had either lost their imperial possessions or collapsed altogether. 
trade and commerce had been greatly disrupted, and entire populations displaced. Assyria too had fallen on hard times. Though it was arguably in a better position than most other states, being far away from the attacks of the Sea Peoples. It too had seen contraction both territorially and economically. Things finally began to change with the ascension of the Assyrian king Ashur-dan II in 934 BC. Like other Assyrian kings of the past, Ashur-dan engaged in several campaigns to expand Assyria's territorial possessions and network of tributary states, the backbone of the empire. However, he also instituted programs to make those territories that Assyria already possessed as productive as possible. Including the old Assyrian centres of Ashur and Nineveh. In addition to renovating temples and public buildings, funds were invested into income-producing properties such as farms and mines in order to help them reach maximum efficiency, streamlining and centralising the economy. In addition, he reformed the Assyrian army, transforming it into the most modern fighting force of its day, especially its chariot divisions, the tanks of the ancient world. Such reforms were what the Assyrian economy desperately needed in order to sustain itself and expand its influence into nearby regions, thus setting into motion the juggernaut that would become the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Though Ashurdan's immediate successors continued his policies of territorial expansion, it was really the King Ashurnasirpal who transformed the great kingdom of Assyria into a true empire. Ruling from 883 to 859 BC, Ashurnasirpal claims to have undertaken at least 14 major military campaigns, expanding Assyria's reach further north into the lands of Neri and Urartu, which today make up parts of southwestern Anatolia as well as west along the Euphrates River to the wealthy city of Carchemish. Deep in the heart of what is now northern Syria. Such expansion allowed him to control the lucrative trade routes that crisscrossed this region, as well as to exact tribute from the wealthy Phoenician city-states along the Mediterranean coast. As a result, the coffers of the Assyrian Empire overflowed with such incalculable wealth that government officials had a difficult time allocating it all. There were only so many temples, public buildings and palaces that could have been constructed or renovated. Or were there? 
In all those centuries of waxing and waning, of empire building and consolidation, whether it was during times of prosperity or scarcity, for over a millennium, the city of Ashur had been the spiritual, cultural and political capital of Assyria. However, what was now Assyria had grown tremendously to become the most powerful and stupendously wealthy state in the ancient world. Thus, Ashurnasipal decided to build a new capital city to reflect Assyria's place in the world. He chose the small town of Kalhu as the location for this grand project. Situated in the centre of the Assyrian heartland, within the triangle formed by the three important cities of Ashur, Nineveh and Arbela. Kalhu, also known as Nimrud, was the perfect choice for such a city. It was both close to the traditional centres of Assyrian power, whilst far enough away from their old aristocracies and elites, groups of people that Ashurnasipal loathed and whose undue influence he could now be rid of. Because Ashurnasipal's Assyrian Empire was like no other. Likewise, Kalhu had to be a capital without rival. Everything about it was designed to be greater than any other city that had ever existed. Whether it was Sargon the Great's capital of Agade, Hammurabi's Babylon, the Memphis of Ramesses II, or the core Assyrian cities of Ashur and Nineveh, Nimrud was not just to be the centre of Assyria, but the world. Ashurnasipal made sure that Nimrud had the most beautiful public buildings and gardens, lavish temples, and the largest palaces of any place within his empire. No expense was to be spared. Of course, what good is having the most splendid capital in the world if you can't show it off? According to what's known as the Banquet Stele, exactly 69,574 people participated in Nimrud's elaborate 10-day inaugural celebration. Along with people from all over the empire, there were 5,000 foreign dignitaries, all of whom were served generous courses of mutton, beef, venison, fish, large quantities of vegetables, fruit, spices, and over 10,000 barrels or skins of beer and wine. For all those in attendance, there could be no doubt as to which nation, let alone ruler, was the wealthiest and most powerful in the world. Despite having the ability to live in such splendour, Assyrian kings spent a great portion of time outside their extravagant residences in order to personally campaign against Assyria's many enemies, both foreign and domestic. Ashurnasipal's son, Shalmaneser III, faced adversaries in all directions, including a coalition of 11 kings from the Levant 
who sought to expel Assyrian influence from their region. Led primarily by the kingdoms of Hamath, Damascus and Israel, forebears of King Hezekiah, the coalition met the army of Shalmaneser III in 853 near the town of Karkar. Though Shalmaneser claimed a great victory, in reality the battle seems to be more of a stalemate. Since ultimately the kings of the opposing coalition were able to keep their thrones. However, several years later, some members of the same coalition resumed their fight against the Assyrians, whilst others went their separate ways. For example, a decade after the Kingdom of Israel under Ahab fought alongside the anti-Assyrian coalition, its new king, Yehu, accepted Shalmaneser as his overlord, becoming one of his vassals. Opposing kings had just two options during this age, accept Assyrian hegemony by paying tribute and supplying soldiers when commanded, or oppose the Assyrian tsunami and risk being wiped out forever. For those kings who chose the latter, the outcome rarely turned out in their favour. In most cases though, the kingdoms that joined Assyria as vassals or allies not only benefited economically due to their unfettered access to the empire's commercial markets, but militarily as well. If one of their neighbours threatened them, they could always call on the local Assyrian governor, or even the king himself, for protection and aid. For ultimately, this was the driving force of empire in the ancient world. The powerful Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III was known for this. While ruthless against his enemies, he was extremely loyal to his allies and vassals. There's an inscription by a king of a land called Yidi that reads, My father grasped the hem of his lord, the great king of Assyria, then did he live, and Yidi lived. My father ran the wheel of his lord, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, in campaigns from east to west. My father died at the feet of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, on campaign, and all the camp of his lord, the king of Assyria, wept for him. And his lord, the king of Assyria, erected an image of him by the roadside, and brought my father across from Damascus. Then, because of my father's loyalty and my own loyalty, my lord Tiglath-Pileser set me on the throne. Another example comes from the Book of Kings in the Old Testament. which mentions that King Ahaz of Judah chose to side with Tiglath-Pileser and become one of his vassals. Though the Bible chides Ahaz for taking help from the pagan Assyrians and not God, 
he ultimately is able to keep his throne and is honoured by Tiglath-Pilassar in Damascus. While this narrative is from a religious and not contemporary historical source, it's more or less consistent with what we know of the Assyrian king's steadfast support for his allies. The reign of Tiglath-Pilassar is notable not only because it commenced a century of Assyrian territorial expansion in all directions, but also because it further strengthened and re-centralized the authority of the king. But that was in the future. Many more wars would be fought to reach that stage. Back in the 9th century BC, during the last days of Shalmaneser's reign, a struggle for who would succeed him broke out between two of his sons, ultimately leading to a civil war. When it was over, the son that won the conflict ascended the throne in 823 BC as Shamshi Adad V. However, the war had been extremely costly and weakened the central authority of the king, allowing many of the empire's governors, field marshals, and other high-ranking individuals to obtain power incommensurate with their rank. Many of them began running their own private fiefdoms within the empire, ultimately weakening it and leading to stagnation across the realm. Scholars call this period from 823 to 744 BC the Age of the Magnates. Though this all changed in 745 BC, when Tiglath-Pileser took the throne. Fed up of the empire's recent decentralization and divisive politics, he clamped down on the power of the magnates, taking an extremely hardline approach towards his opponents, either terminating them or replacing them with those he knew were personally loyal to him. After consolidating his power, he went on a series of campaigns to reconquer territories that Assyria had been forced to withdraw from a few decades prior. Kingdoms and cities that opposed him were brutally suppressed, with any surviving civilian populations often being deported from their homelands and resettled in other distant regions of the empire. A policy of divide and rule that would continue to be a mainstay in imperial rule for thousands of years to come, all over the world. In their place, new settlers from Assyria moved into their lands and reoccupied or rebuilt their cities. It's believed that the vast majority of these deported peoples were Aramean speakers, and their settlement throughout the Assyrian Empire may have led to Aramaic becoming the lingua franca of the region for centuries. It's precisely the memory of such brutal policies and actions that have given the ancient Assyrians such a reputation for being a warlike, bloodthirsty people. However, in reality, the aim of the Assyrian king was not to kill or disrupt the lives of his enemies or rebellious subjects. Thank you.
but to maintain a sense of order as well as security from those who would do Assyria harm. Seeing the best way to do this is through fear. Make an example of one city and others will fall in line. Much like the Romans used crucifixion en masse to put down rebels. Public shows of power to awe enemies into submission were certainly used by the Assyrians. Perhaps most famous is this inscription by Ashurnasirpal during the early days of imperial expansion. I built a pillar over against the city gate, and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round the pillar. I cut the limbs off the officers who had rebelled. Many captives I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to tree trunks around the city. Their young men and maidens I consumed with fire. The rest of their warriors I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. As horrific as this description is, the Assyrian state wasn't particularly unusual in its cruelty for the time, but more the sheer scale of its success. Rather than being a barbaric society in the Western sense of the word, the Assyrians were in fact a very cultured and refined people who had their own great literary and artistic traditions. However, they lived in a rough neighbourhood and knew the history of their land and the greater region well, having long memories. Whether these outsiders, especially semi-nomadic ones, Gutians, Amorites, Hurrians, Elamites, or now Arameans, these outsiders had more often than not caused havoc to the existing order. For the Assyrian king, it was his divine duty, commanded to him by the god Ashur, to not allow this to happen. Order had to be kept. Thus, if the king had to use brutality against his enemies to make a point and to make his people safe, then so be it. Assyria's very survival depended on it. This same policy also applied to the citizens of the empire. Stay in line and all would be well. Rebel at your own peril. Having more than doubled the empire's territorial holdings and tributary states, which once again put Assyria on the path to unchallenged regional supremacy, in 727 BC, 
Tiglath-Pilasa III passed away. He was succeeded by one of his sons, Shalmaneser V, who, according to a Babylonian chronicle, was the Assyrian king who conquered the Kingdom of Israel and its capital at the time, Samaria. However, the nail in the coffin for the Kingdom and Samaria may have actually come during the reign of Shalmaneser's half-brother, who in 722 overthrew him to become King Sargon II of Assyria. It was probably early in Sargon's reign that what had once been the Kingdom of Israel officially became the Assyrian province of Samarina. Though the conquest and ultimate subjugation of this kingdom is well known due to its mention in the Bible, it was actually one of Assyria's smaller military campaigns during the Neo-Assyrian period. In reality, there were much more powerful and larger threats to the state, especially in southeastern Anatolia, as well as Babylonia, similarly ancient lands. The latter, now ruled over by Chaldean warrior lords, a fresh infusion of once nomadic military rulers who would fight tooth and nail against the Assyrians to cling on to their newly won holdings. Just north of Assyria, in lands that today make up southeastern Turkey, Armenia, and parts of Iran and Azerbaijan, was the land of Urartu. Once consisting of petty kingdoms and hill tribes. In the 9th century BC, its leaders united their realms together into a single great kingdom in order to ward off Assyrian aggression. In time, the kingdom of Urartu became powerful enough to threaten not just the empire's frontier, but the Assyrian heartland itself. Sargon II decided that it was time to put an end once and for all to the threat from Urartu. In 714 BC, he moved deep into Uratian territory, plundering several towns along the way, before defeating the king, Rusa I, in a decisive battle. Rusa and what was left of the Uratian army fled. But the Assyrian king decided not to pursue them. However, Instead of returning to Assyria, Sargon, along with 1,000 of his best men, travelled south to the city of Musasir to plunder the sacred temple of Urartu's patron god, Haldi. Both Sargon's military victory over Rusa, as well as the sacking of their national shrine, were near-fatal blows Urartu would never fully recover from. All but eliminating the mountain kingdom as a threat to Assyria. While the campaign in Urartu may have been Sargon's most famous, 
Perhaps just as important was his ability to pacify unrest in Babylonia. For centuries, Assyria and Babylon had been fierce rivals. Militarily, Assyria was generally the stronger power, and on several occasions had even conquered and occupied the capital city of Babylon itself. There were few fans of Assyria in most Babylonian cities. Neo-Assyrian kings, though, especially as their power and territorial reach grew, considered Babylonia to be within their own sphere of influence and controlled it under puppet rulers. However, during the short period of instability when Sargon II ascended the throne, many areas of the empire, including Babylonia, took advantage of the situation and revolted. In 722 or 721 BC, a Chaldean by the name of Marduk Apla Edina, better known to history as Merodach Baladan, seized the throne of Babylon to declare himself as a king. Due to campaigns in other parts of the empire, Sargon could not fully devote his attention to the Babylonian problem until 710 BC, when he invaded the area in full force. Defeating Merodach Baladan, who eventually went into exile. Beginning a lengthy and interesting series of guerrilla campaigns and adventures in the marshlands of southern Iraq and over the sea and mountains in Iran, the old enemy of Mesopotamia for thousands of years. Sargon II was actually welcomed by many Babylonians as their new king. He seemed to return the favour by regularly worshipping Babylon's patron deity, Marduk. As well as staying in the city for three years, much to the chagrin of many in Assyria. Like Ashurnasipal II, Sargon II also constructed a new capital city, known as Dur Shurikin, meaning Fort Sargon. It took at least 10 years to build, being completed in 707 BC. Yet Sargon spent little time in his new fortress capital. Just two years later, being killed in battle in the region of Tabal on the northern frontier. Possibly by Cimmerians, barbarian horsemasters of the north. Sargon's body was never recovered from the battlefield, meaning that the proper funeral rites could not be carried out. This, according to Assyrian religion, meant that Sargon's spirit would be cursed to wander the world, never resting in peace. For the average Assyrian, extremely religious devotees of the war god Ashur, along with an elaborate pantheon, this was a sign that they'd been abandoned by the gods. 
but why? Many may have reasoned that their king's tragic end was due to his love of Babylon and adoration of its patron deity Marduk. Thus, when his son, Sinahi Erebah, better known to history as Sennacherib, came to power in around 704 BC, he abandoned his father's fortress at Dershurikin, moving the Assyrian capital to Nineveh. In many ways, Sennacherib was the exact opposite of his father. Whereas Sargon II had continued to strangle the kingdom of Urartu, Sennacherib sought a rapprochement with it, most likely for the reason that it acted as a buffer between Assyria and the hostile nomadic tribes that roamed the relatively uncharted territories beyond. Sennacherib is best known to history for his attack on the Kingdom of Judah and his siege in 701 BC of its capital, Jerusalem. This is yet another event that's described in both the Old Testament of the Bible as well as in Sennacherib's own inscriptions. Though each's account of what happened differs. Both agree that Sennacherib moved into the Levant to either accept tribute from or destroy several of its kingdoms. The Assyrians then entered Judah and attacked the city of Lachish before heading to Jerusalem. There, Sennacherib laid siege to the city, but in the end, failed to take it. Both the Bible and Assyrian records agree on this outcome, but the reason why isn't clear. The biblical account details the discussion between the prophet Isaiah and Judah's king Hezekiah, who is convinced that he must hold against Sennacherib's siege. Then one night, an angel miraculously goes through the enemy camp to kill 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. Though most scholars tend to believe that the numbers of his army would be closer to 5,000. Regardless of the total, and how it happened, such heavy losses seem to have been what forced Sennacherib to withdraw. The Assyrian account gives a different, more worldly explanation for Sennacherib's departure. Stressing that on the other side of the empire, there was a massive revolt when Merodach Baladan returned to foment more trouble in Babylonia. Of course, this is the same Merodach Baladan who Sennacherib's father had fought and forced into exile barely a decade earlier. Similar to during his father's time, Merodach Baladan knew that he was outnumbered, and so sought exile in neighbouring Elam. In order to punish and further prevent Elamite interference in Assyrian affairs, 
In 694 BC, Sennacherib preemptively attacked Elam by sending Assyrian forces across the Gulf to attack the southern portion of the country and then move towards the Elamite capital of Susa. However, this campaign ended up being a disaster and in retaliation, Elam's ruler, Halushu in Shushanak, bypassed the Assyrian forces to march directly into Babylonia, spurring the locals there into full rebellion. When word of the events reached the city of Babylon, the people there seized Sennacherib's son, Ashurnadin Shumi, who he'd appointed as the ruler of the city, and turned him over to the Elamites. It's presumed he was executed. This, for Sennacherib, was the last straw. In what was no doubt an act of personal vengeance, Sennacherib destroyed Babylon. One of his own inscriptions reads as follows. The city and its houses, from its foundations to its parapets, I swept away, I demolished, I burned with fire. The wall and the outer wall, the temples and the gods, the ziggurat of mud brick and earth, as many as there were, I tore down and deposited them into the Aratu Canal. In the midst of that city I dug ditches and flooded its ground with water. The form of its foundations I destroyed, and I caused its devastation to exceed that of any flood, so that in later days the ground of that city, its temples, its gods, would be forgotten. In time, Babylon's structures would be rebuilt its temples restored. But its people would never forget. While Sennacherib's life was filled with war and court intrigue, he also spent considerable amounts of time in cultivating the gardens of Nineveh, which he appears to have been very fond of. It is he, along with his grandson, Ashurbanipal, who in large part were responsible for making Nineveh the greatest capital city of the ancient world at the time. One theory even argues that the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which have never been discovered archaeologically, were really a half-remembered nod to the gardens of Nineveh. In 693 BC, Sennacherib unexpectedly replaced his son, Urdu Melissi, as his designated heir with another. Ashurahar Edina, better known as Esaradon. Obviously rejecting his father's decision, Urdu Mullasi and his supporters conspired against and assassinated his father. However, Asaradon, who at the time was in the western portion of the empire, 
marched into Nineveh with his supporters to defeat his brother. After which, he became the new king of Assyria after all. Esaradon's reign was one of balance. Considering the violent deaths of his grandfather Sargon, and especially that of his father, to be divine warnings, Esaradon rebuilt the city of Babylon and the temple of its patron god Marduk. But he also made sure not to neglect Ashur, both the city and the god. He also led military campaigns to conquer or recover Cilicia, the Phoenician city-state of Sidon, Media in the east, Eastern Arabia, and the greatest prize of all, Egypt, which he conquered in 671 BC in less than a month. However, within just a few years, the Egyptians revolted forcing Asaradon to return to the land of the Nile. However, he never made it back to Egypt, dying en route. Asarhaddon had two sons, Ashurbanipal and Shamash Shumu Ikin. Wishing to avoid conflict over the succession, like that of his own, he instead made both of his sons kings. Ashurbanipal becoming the ruler of Assyria, while his brother became the king of Babylon. Unfortunately, of course, this arrangement didn't last for long, with fighting breaking out between the two brothers. It's perhaps for this reason that Ashurbanipal didn't go personally to deal with the Egyptian rebels instead sending his most trusted generals to complete the job for him. Exploiting the tension between the two brothers, the Elamites again sought to undermine Assyria and Ashurbanipal by supporting Shamash, Shamu Ikin and Babylon. In 664 BC, the Elamite king Ertak led a surprise war against Assyria. The overall conflict was only temporarily resolved in 653 BC, when Assyrian troops defeated the Elamite king Teoman at the Battle of the Ule River. Teoman's head was brought back to Assyria and put on public display as a trophy. Though this didn't stop future Elamite support for Babylon, which was crucial when Shamash Shamu Ikin declared war on Assyria that same year. This renewed conflict between the brothers lasted for about four years, only ending in 648 BC, when Ashurbanipal's men finally entered Babylon to kill the king's brother, possibly by burning him alive as he hid in his palace. Ashurbanipal didn't stop there. He decided that it was time to both punish the Elamites for their years of interference in Babylonian affairs, as well as to ensure that they'd never attack Assyrian interests again. 
Thus, in 647 BC, Ashurbanipal's army ravaged Elam and the great city of Susa, in a similar manner to that of Sennacherib's destruction of Babylon a few decades prior. He boasted of destroying their temples, burning the city's palaces, plundering its wealth, and even digging up and desecrating the bones of its long-deceased kings. Though he often depicted himself as a fearless and cunning warrior, Ashurbanipal, in fact, rarely went on major campaigns, preferring instead to spend his days in his massive library, studying the great texts of old. In fact, it's from Ashurbanipal's library at Nineveh that many of the old Sumerian and Babylonian texts, or at least copies of them, were first discovered. Ashurbanipal, in classic Assyrian style, sought to obtain a copy of every important text that had ever been written since the beginning of time. Sending scholars and scribes all over the Near East to either bring them back, or if this wasn't possible, to at least make copies of them. In one inscription, he boasts of his own scribal skills and how he could read intricate tablets inscribed with obscure Sumerian or Akkadian scripts that were difficult to unravel, as well as confused inscriptions of stone from before the flood. A particular obsession for most intellectuals of ancient Mesopotamia that would later morph into the Biblical Flood. Ashurbanipal was the last of the great Assyrian kings. When he died around the year 630 BC, the Assyrian Empire was the most powerful that it had ever been. Very few, if any, could challenge it militarily or on any other level. And yet, barely two decades after Ashurbanipal's death, the Assyrian Empire ceased to exist. Due to the wealth of sources for the period shortly after Ashurbanipal's death, scholars have been able to conclusively determine the path that led to the collapse of such a mighty empire. Based on what has been uncovered, it seems that Ashurbanipal's son and successor, Ashuratel Ilani, was just a minor when he ascended the throne. Leading to the chief eunuch, Sin Shumu Lashir, ruling as regent. Because eunuchs could not father children or have families, meaning no wealth or property to pass on, they were generally trusted members of most royal administrations. For reasons that are unclear, however, in 627 BC, Ashuratel Ilani mysteriously disappeared, with the chief eunuch and now regent Sin Shamu Lishir crowning himself as king. This was unprecedented in Assyrian history. However, after just a few months on the throne, 
Sin Shamu Lashir himself disappeared, being replaced by another son of Ashurbanipal. Sin Sharu Ishkin. By now, however, Assyria's enemies and disgruntled subjects must have known that things were unstable at court. And in the absence of a strong military ruler, many of them decided to revolt, including the Babylonians. A certain Chaldean regional official named Nabopolassa led the anti-Assyrian activities in Babylonia, eventually becoming the king of Babylon. He mustered together whatever forces he could and gradually pushed the Assyrians out of his new realm. However, history could always repeat itself. The Assyrians could always return to reassert control of the region. Thus, Nabopolassar resolved to free Babylonia once and for all from the existential threat looming to their north. Forming an alliance with King Cyraxes of the Medes, an Indo-European people originating in the frontiers around the Zagros Mountains, who had once also been subjugated by the Assyrians, and may have in part filled a power vacuum left in Iran after the Assyrian sack of Susa. Nabopolassar marched north to conquer Assyria. The Medes, only recently a semi-nomadic people steeped in warfare and military conquest, were the first to score major victories against the Assyrians. In 615 BC, conquering the important city of Arapa, and shortly afterward, capturing and devastating Ashur, the very place where Assyria had began. For over 1400 years, the city had withstood the test of time. Now, in a matter of weeks, the city's great walls had come down, its temples desecrated, monumental buildings put to the torch, its rich treasuries plundered, and its people massacred. The loss of Ashur must have been a psychological blow greater than any military one that the Assyrians could have suffered. The decisive blow finally came in 612 BC, when the combined Babylonian and Median armies, supported by Scythian horse nomads from the north, breached the walls of Nineveh, enacting the same fate upon it as Ashur. During the conflict, the Assyrian king, Sinsharu Ishkin, was killed. Now, the Assyrian heartland had been completely conquered, with the Babylonians and the Medes dividing up the spoils of war. Despite this, however, the war wasn't over, with Assyrian holdouts fighting on for years to come. One group maintained control of the cities of Haran and Carchemish for a few years under a new king, Ashur-Ubalat II. 
However, by 610, we are told that they were forced out of these cities, and after a failed attempt to retake them, never heard of again. Thus, without a king or a state to run, the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrian Kingdom vanished from the historical record. Replaced in time by a new empire, derived in part by the Medes who had conquered Assyria. The Persians, under the Achaemenid dynasty, which utilised much of the societal infrastructure developed over a thousand years by the Assyrians. While the Assyrians as a people survived, the mighty empire that they had once held one that had inspired both awe and dread amongst the people of the region, was gone for good. However, the influence of the Neo-Assyrian Empire and its culture and traditions did not disappear. In fact, due to later classical writers such as Herodotus, future generations were at least somewhat familiar with Assyria. Though often mistakenly viewing all of Mesopotamia as Assyrian. Arguably the first true world empire that at its height encompassed more territory than any state preceding it. The Neo-Babylonians, Persians, Macedonians, Romans, Parthians and others, even into the Islamic period, copied and were influenced by Assyrian practices for empire and administration. Assyrian art also influenced later peoples of the region, who often merged several aspects of their style with their own. It's also due to the Assyrians that much of our knowledge with regard to the ancient Near East has been preserved. Whether in cuneiform or Aramaic language, Assyrian scholars acting as the link to the earliest stories of mankind. And of course, the modern Assyrian community keep alive many of the traditions of their ancestors of centuries past. The time when Assyria ruled the world. Thanks for watching folks, if you enjoyed this video don't forget to like, let me know in the comments what you'd like to see covered in the future, and subscribe so you don't miss new episodes, and you can watch the whole collection of history videos I've already made. You've been watching History Time, my name's Pete Kelly, and I'll see you on the next one.